Well, good morning, everybody. The, uh, for some reason, the sign of the bumper feels like a National Geographic, like nature documentary. I'm, I'm waiting for David Attenborough's voice to start talking or something. Uh, listen, before I jump into today's uh, message, they asked me to remind you uh, when you came in on your chair, you would have seen one of these. These are our uh, pledge cards for our accessible playground uh, generosity campaign. We've talked about this for a few weeks. If you have questions about it on the QR code in front of you, you can find all the information about the playground. Uh, if you know, you've been praying, thinking about how you want to be a part of this, support it. Uh, cards are due next week. I want to show you something. Uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, last week when we announced this, my wife was talking to my son, explaining what was going on, and he loves playgrounds. And he has this little piggy bank that you know his grandparents gave him money for, and he says, I want to give some of my money. And this morning, before the first service, my wife sent me this video. I want to show you this. Yes. Okay, put it in here. So today, he came in, second service, with $4 in coins for the playground, which I'm guessing is Robin is going to love counting. So all the point is, if my three-year-old son wants to get behind this, you want to get behind it, man. So, uh, cards to you next week. We'd love for, for you to be a part of this project. Now, with that, uh, we've been in this series called Beginning. Uh, I was talking to my wife yesterday, sharing what, what I was preaching on. And she, in a very, I, I was made sure to explain, in a very non-threatening, non-complaining way, just inquisitively, asked, are we going to be on the book of Genesis, the whole, the, the whole uh, sermon series? Because Chad's been promising that we're taking you through the whole Bible. And I said, no, I get the privilege of taking you basically from the remainder of Genesis to the end of the Old Testament in 25 minutes. So buckle up. Listen, tomorrow is enough day. I'll have you home by, like, lunch tomorrow. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It's a joke. We're getting here on time. Don't worry about it. Anyway, um, we've been looking at these beginnings in the Bible. Two weeks ago, we looked at creation, right, the story of creation. In the story of creation, obviously, in the scriptures, is the beginning of everything. One of the things Chad was saying was that the point of the creation story is to show us that we're meant for relationship, right? Like God creates humans to be in relationship with him. That's absolutely true. But there's a second kind of like layer of importance to the first couple of chapters in Genesis, and it's this, that the first couple of chapters in Genesis are the one place in the Bible, before you get to like the end of the book of Revelation, where you see everything working perfectly without the presence of sin. You have humans getting along. There's no selfishness, no jealousy. There's this perfect relationship between humans and the natural world and animals. There's a perfect relationship between uh, God and humans. And, and the way that Hebrew uh, uh, scholars that call this is, is the Hebrew word called shalom. And, and shalom literally just means peace. But uh, it's kind of like a deeper type of peace. I like to call it usually perfect harmony. So you have creation, you have everything working in perfect harmony. Then last week, we looked at the story of the fall. And the story of the fall, what happens? Uh, sin enters the picture, and what sin does is that sin sort of like throws everything into chaos. And that's what we see last week, that all of a sudden, there's all this brokenness spinning out of, of sin and the fall. And it's a very bleak picture that you get, even though, as Chad was telling us last week, it ends in a, in a little bit of a hopeful note, right? That God, even though he said that man and woman would die if they ate from the tree, 
they're not really, they're not killed. They're cast out of the garden, but they're not only cast out of the garden. They're cast out of the garden with this uh, animal garment that God kills an animal to cover the shame of the nakedness that Adam and Eve are carrying with them. So it would seem that even after humans disobey God and, and break this perfect harmony that the world is in, that all is not lost, that uh, there is this hope for the future. So we, we, that's where we ended last week. There's a little bit of hope for the future. And at the same time, at the moment that we're reading Genesis 3, the world is in chaos. And, and you know that because of what you see happen next, right? So like the, the very next thing that happens, Adam and Eve have children, and literally one of those children murders the other one. We have the introduction of murder. You keep reading, and there's the introduction of revenge and vengeance. Eventually things get so bad that by the time of Genesis 6, God decides that things are so terrible that sin has spread out in such a way that women are killing each other, oppressing each other, abusing each other, and they're walking away from God so that God hits the reset button. That's the story of Noah and the flood. And in the aftermath of the story of the flood, there's something interesting that happens. You're familiar with the story? I want to read you a little bit of kind of like what happens. So Noah gets to this mountain, and then all of a sudden God speaks to him and says this. Then God told Noah and his sons, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants and with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, every living creature on earth. Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. God makes a deal with Noah, and it's not any sort of deal. He uses this very specific word, covenant. And, and the word covenant, uh, it sounds kind of like weird, like I hear it today, and it sounds like a horror movie or like a video game where somebody's trying to kill you or something like that. But, but in the ancient world, the word covenant, it, it was basically uh, a special kind of like legal form of an agreement. Like think about like a contract, but it was a contract with, with really deep, profound implications. Because on one hand, it involves making these solemn vows from one party to the next. There was usually some sort of consequence from breaking those vows. Sometimes those consequences included death. And more importantly than that, the, the, the nature of the vows changed fundamentally the relationship that you had with the person that you were entering into a covenant with. Uh, probably the closest thing that we have today to what a covenant is, is honestly marriage. Right, that you come before two parties and you make vows to one another, and the nature of these vows and this relationship fundamentally changes once you're married, uh, and it has these profound implications. And you know, if you've been doing the Core 52 Challenge with us, this was one of the first topics that we looked at. Covenants were a serious deal. You don't enter into a covenant sort of like willy-nilly. And in Genesis 9, the passage that we looked at, we see God entering into this covenant with humans. Now, what happens next? Uh, you know, Noah, Noah's children have children, and they sort of like repopulate the earth, refill the earth. And what we read is that things don't get much better in the aftermath of God hitting the reset button. That people still, you know, uh, start organizing themselves in cities and nations that are warring against each other, that are fighting with one another that are exploiting people, uh, whatever you want to think, like all of the bad things that you can imagine, they keep happening. And, and, and the problem is that now God has sort of like, sort of like put himself in, back himself into a corner. Because if the larger theme is that the shalom, the relationship between God and humans has been broken, 
and God seems to be trying to restore that somehow, he can't hit the reset button anymore. He says he won't do it. So how can God keep working to try to restore this relationship? Enter a guy named Abram. Abram is, uh, you know, he lives in a place called Haran. It's a city in northern Mesopotamia, I think like modern-day Iraq. And from some of the clues that we get from the Bible, his family did not worship Yahweh. Like they did not worship the God of the Bible. Uh, chances are we don't know at this time if anybody was worshiping the God of the Bible. What we read from him is that he's married, and him and his wife have been trying to have children but are not able to have children. Until one day, Abram has this encounter with God. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to them. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. There's a couple of things are happening here, right? God, show, God shows up. God calls Abram. And he gives these very vague instructions. Basically, pick up your family and go to where I'm telling you. He never says where, where they're going. He never says how long it's going to take to get there. If I was Abram, I would be like the donkey in Shrek. Like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? That he's just kind of following this. And then God also makes his promises to Abram. He says, I'm going to make you this great nation. And, and, and the implication here is that whatever thing that God is turning to a through Abraham is going to be beyond just Abram. Like, this is something that is going to have these global implications that he's going to kind of like accomplish through his descendants. God is not just calling one man. God is really calling a community. And then listen to the next part of the verse. It says, you will be a blessing to others. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. God's saying, hey, I want you to do this for me, and I want you to go to where I'm telling you. And he says, if you do that, you're going to become a great nation. But then there's this line there. He says, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Remember what we were talking at the beginning, right? That the shalom, the, the perfect relationship between God and humans has been broken. And all of a sudden here we see a guy, and guy is saying, I'm going to do something through you that's going to change that. Which, do you know what that means? What that means is that God is telling Abraham, we're going to do this thing together. You and me, your descendants and me. There is a partnership going on here. God seems to be wanting to accomplish his purposes through a partnership. And by the way, this is a recurring theme in the Old Testament. Like One of the ways that you can see how God behaves in the Old Testament is that God, for all of his power and authority, it's always interested in sharing and delegating that authority with his creation. You see in Genesis 1, God creates the world, and, you know, the, the world is, is beautiful, but it's not completely full. He says to the animals, to all of the created beings, like, make more. Like, fill this. He's partnering with them to fill the world. He, he puts humans in the middle of the garden. He says to us, I want you to rule over this. And that's not an excuse to kind of, like, do whatever they want. It's more of, like, a stewardship. He's saying, I want you to take care of this. I want you to protect it. I want you to partner with me in taking care of the world. This guy seems to be this very generous God who's always looking to partner with his creation to accomplish his purposes. Now, what happens next is that Abraham obeys what God says. He starts, uh, you know, 
moving to wherever God tells him to move. And the next two chapters, he gets up to all sorts of adventures, except that him and his wife still cannot conceive. And Abram has his promise from God, and Abram doesn't know what to do with the promise. So at that time, there was a, a practice that if you didn't have any children, you could sort of like adopt one of your servants, and they would kind of like take on your name, and you could pass on your wealth, your inheritance to them, so that your name would sort of live on. And Abraham is thinking about doing this. He said, maybe the way in which God does this is through me adopting uh, my servant. But God then shows up to Abraham and tells him, no, I'm going to do this through your children. And God then makes this incredible promise to Abraham. Uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. Then the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. God makes this promise to Abraham about his descendants. And Abraham, in spite of his old age, in, in spite of the fact that him and his wife have not been able to conceive children, takes God at his word and believes what he says. Verse 6 says, and Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his and because of that faith, what God does is that God then enters once more into a covenant with Abram. Let me show you. Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. And, and notice what he's saying. He's like, I'm making this covenant with you, and he's giving like very specific locations, and there's a reason for that. And the reason is that in the ancient Near East at that time, your understanding of the supernatural world, like everybody believed that there were all sorts of gods, but everybody has this very localized understanding of gods, right? That, that if you lived in this particular area, you had a god, and then that god was not the same god that then oversaw the other area. Like if we take it today's world, like, you know, there's a Mount Vernon god, and the people Mount Vernon worship the Mount Vernon God, and the Mount Vernon God is not the same, you know, God as the Lorton God. That's another God. And sometimes they get along, sometimes they don't. And then that's not the same as, like, the Arlington God. And the Arlington God thinks that he's better than all the other gods, so nobody gets along with him. And, you know, you have all these, like, different relationships with all the different gods that live in different places. And God is kind of, like, injecting, interjecting himself into this way of understanding the world. And he's saying, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of like plant myself in this very specific geographic area with a specific people to show the world what it would look like for a group of people to live in shalom, to live in harmony, to live in peace with God. He's forming this community similar to these other communities, except that this community is going to worship him. And we see this because a couple of chapters later, Abraham has another encounter with God where God sort of like ratifies this covenant, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully, listen to this, and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee you to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell face down to the ground. And God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abraham. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them. 
I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And I will give the entire land of Canaan where you now live as a foreigner to you and your descendants. It will be their possession forever and I will be their God. And this covenant God has demands of Abraham, expectations, so to speak. He's calling Abraham and he says, Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. Why is that? Because of what we've been talking about. God is calling this community through Abraham to show the world what it looks like to live in shalom with God, what it looks like to live in peace, in perfect harmony with God. And God is going to do that through Abraham and his descendants. God is starting this new community that would show the world what it's like to be the people of God. And he says, if you do that, then I will be your God and you and your descendants will be my people. God's promise comes true, by the way. Abraham has a son, has two sons, actually. It's a whole other story. Um, and um, the, his, his uh, son that kind of like follows his promise, Isaac, he has children and those children have children. And eventually they become this large group of people that at that point is called the Hebrew people. And they end up as slaves in Egypt. And now that slavery, God raises up a man named Moses. Moses goes. You don't shout on Hesson, you know this. He comes, he rescues them, takes them out of Egypt. And on the way to the promised land, they stop at the same mountain where, uh, where Moses had an encounter with God called Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai, God establishes again a covenant with the whole people of Israel. It's Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give this instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests my holy nation. This is the message we must give to the people of Israel. You see all these ideas that we've been talking about here, right? The idea of covenant. There's these two elements. Obey me, keep my commands, and then you'll be my special treasure among the peoples on the earth. We see that the element of partnership. He's saying to them, you're going to become my kingdom of priests. A priest is a person who mediates the divine to the people, right? Like that was the idea just in general how people would talk, think about priests in the first century. And he's saying, it's only that you're going to have specific priests for the temple, but in a way, all of you are priests. Because, because all of you are going to display to the world what it looks like to live in right relationship with me. And if you do that, then you'll be my people and I will be your God. In other words, God's saying, I want to enter into a partnership with you to show the world what it looks like to live in perfect harmony with me. There's another element to covenant, and it's usually that if you broke the covenant, there will be consequences. So you fast forward to the book of Deuteronomy. These people that have entered into a covenant with God, they all die in the desert. It takes them like 40 years to get to the promised land, and their children are the ones that actually are going to enter the promised land. So in the book of Deuteronomy, they have this encounter with God where God sort of like ratifies the covenant that they've entered into. And this is one verse, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36. It's kind of like warning, hey, this is what happens if you don't live up to your own covenant, if you 
disobey him, if you go after other gods, if you start living not in the way that, that I'm calling you to live, says the Lord will exile you and your king to a nation unknown to you and your ancestors. There in exile you will worship gods of wood and stone. And I'm just reading you this verse to give you a glimpse of it. But it's like a couple of chapters of very like gnarly <laughs> curses and warnings that happen. This group of people enter into the promised land, and what happens after that is a couple hundred years of this very checkered history in keeping a covenant with God. That you have, you know, sometimes the people are obeying God and everything is great, and sometimes they start, uh, you know, worshiping other false gods and doing all sorts of terrible, nasty things. And it gets to the point that the way that the, the, the people of Israel organized itself was it didn't have a king at the time because God was their king. And they had these, these judges that God would appoint for a time to kind of like lead the army into battle and to like just adjudicate just It's like a libertarian's dream, right? Like there's no president. It's one guy. And all he's doing is army and like judge stuff. And the people of Israel that don't like that. And they don't like it to the point that they say, we want to have a king like the other nations. And God says, that's not what I want, but fine, I'll give you a king. Saul uh, rises up. Saul turns out not to be a good king. And then this guy named David shows up. We sang about him. Uh, earlier today, you know, he's facing, David faces Goliath the giant, very famous story. And David, at one point in his, in, in his reign, has sort of like uh, achieved like peace with all of the enemies surrounding Israel. And then he thinks to himself, you know, up until this point, the presence of God is said to have resided in a tabernacle. And the tabernacle is basically a tent. And he's saying, it's kind of like ridiculous that I have a palace and God has a tent. I want to build a temple for God. And he goes, he goes to one of the prophets of the time. He says, I want to build a temple for God. And God, through the prophet, responds to heaven. He says this, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. And I will provide a homeland for my people, Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your side. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me all time, for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. This comes to be also known as a covenant that God makes with David and his household specifically. So you have kind of like this idea of God making this covenant with all the descendants of Abraham and then, you know, specifically now with the people of Israel. Now parallel to this, God is making this covenant to this specific kind of like lineage of kings. God's making all these promises that they're going to live in the land forever. And then what happens from there? Well, the checkered history of the people of Israel and uh, the Davidic dynasty continues. And David has a king named Solomon, and Solomon starts out great, 
And then he starts like swiping right on every single queen of every single kingdom nearby. They don't worship Yahweh, so they have all these false gods. And he kind of like gives himself to this lifestyle away from God as a punishment that kind of like splits the kingdom into two. There's like a civil war that happens. Part of the kingdom remains under David's lineage. The rest of the kingdom doesn't. And the majority of these kings on both sides are not great guys. And what I mean is, is that the people of Israel also don't live great lives at the time. And they go after false gods and they start engaging in all sorts of terrible practices. And in the middle of all this, God starts raising up prophets. God starts writing uh, to the people of Israel saying, guys, this is a bad idea. Like, we shouldn't be doing this stuff. Remember that God gave us these warnings about what would happen if we disobeyed. And part of those warnings is like, we could be sent into exile. And actually, it's exactly uh, what happens. And the prophets are kind of like, you know, writing these prophecies, and they're identifying two issues. One is this. Our kings, the descendants of David, have failed at keeping their end of the covenant. And we as a nation have failed. Now, you know, you keep reading the promises, the prophecies, and they get very interesting because parallel to these pro prophecies of judgment and exile, you also start finding these other prophecies. The prophecies of hope about God doing something in the future where exile would come to an end and they would be able to come home. Now, this is not something that they invented, right? There, there was a reason for them to believe this. There's a passage in the book of Deuteronomy uh, that I didn't read you earlier where, where God tells them, by the way, you're going to go into exile, but even then, I can bring you back. This is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. It says, in the future, when you experience all these blessings and curses I have listed for you. And when you're living among the nations to which the Lord your God has exiled you, take to heart all these instructions. If at that time you and your children return to the Lord your God, and if you obey with all your heart and all your soul all the commands I have given you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortress. He will have mercy on you and gather you back from all the nations where he has scattered you. Even though you're banished to the ends of the earth, the Lord your God will gather you from there and bring you back again. The Lord your God will return you to the land that belonged to you and your ancestors, and you will possess that land again, and he will make you even more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The prophet Ezekiel prophesies the same thing. He says, for I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And that's exactly what happens. First, exile comes. Uh, the Assyrian kingdom comes and completely destroys the one side of Israel that wasn't under Davidic control. And then a few years later, the Babylonian Empire comes and destroys the part of the kingdom that was under Davidic control. And they take most of the people into exile. And for 70 years, they live in exile. And after those 70 years, the people of Israel are able to go back to their homeland. And Jerusalem and the temple are rebuilt. But at the same time that this happens, Nothing else really changes. What that means is that even though they're home, they're still noticing that they're not able to keep their end of the covenant. And a descendant of David hasn't returned to the throne. And they're still, you know, open to foreign attacks. The Old Testament ends in this very strange place where the people of Israel are back from exile, living in their homeland, and still feels like they're waiting for something else. That these prophecies about what God would do in the aftermath of their exile has not, have not been fulfilled. Because it's the thing, the prophecies and promises from God included something else. Let me show you. Deuteronomy 
30, back to the original uh, promise from God. He said, the Lord your God will change your heart and the hearts of all your descendants so that you will love him with all your heart and soul so you may live. You see, God is getting to the core of the issue. That there is a deeper problem than excess. And the problem is this, that humans are terrible at keeping covenants. And I'm saying the problem is in your heart. No matter how many times you come back from hell, you're still like, we, or, or we, we veer away from God. This is the result of the breaking of the shalom between God and humans. The other problem is that David's descendants were in the same boat. That David's descendants were not able to obey God and, and, and to stay faithful to God. And, you know, it's almost like the, the, the prophets are thinking, okay, what if God did something where we would get a new heart? So Ezekiel prophesies, he says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. And then the prophet Jeremiah says, you know what? Part of the problem is that we got really crummy descendants of David that didn't own that third part. So he starts prophesying this. He says, for the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line, he will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. If part of the problem is David's descendants, the prophets start imagining this. What if David had another son, a different son, that would obey what God said? And this is where the Old Testament ends. The people of Israel are back from exile, living in the land again, with still this yearning that God would do something that would change their hearts and that God would raise up a different descendant of David that would be able to be faithful to God. The end. Thank you for coming. That's the whole Old Testament in 20 minutes, in 30 minutes or less. Uh, I'm joking, uh, sort of. Come next week because then we're going to continue the story in the Bible, what happens next. Um, I just want to offer a couple of reflections just in, in, in a few minutes uh, about what we've looked at today. This is the first thing. What I find fascinating about God and covenant, and I want to make sure, I want to sound very controversial. Um, I don't want to be blasphemous or anything, but I'm making a point here. Um, Based on the Old Testament, you could make the argument that God exhibits very poor judgment about who he enters into covenant with. Because he keeps getting into these covenants with these people that are terrible at keeping the covenant. People that, that say yes, and then the very next thing they do is to disobey God. God is up the mountain giving Moses the law, and they're like downstairs burning metal and making a false god and getting into all sorts of shenanigans. And that's the story throughout the Bible that with, with Abraham, with the people of Israel, with David's descendants. They, okay, if you could have a credit score for keeping a covenant, the credit score of humanity is on the floor, right? If you were a bank and you had to give a loan to humanity based on how good they are at keeping covenants, you would get left out of the room. If I were God, to be honest with you, I wouldn't enter into a covenant with you people. I wouldn't be entering into a covenant with me for that matter, right? Like, like we, we, we exhibit this terrible track record of keeping covenant. And it would seem that God doesn't seem to care. That this God has this fixation on people. That this God has this 
longing for people. This love for people. That even though he knows we're going to break the covenant, he keeps getting into another covenant, another covenant, until we arrive. And, and, and what happens at the end of the Old Testament is that it becomes pretty evident that that's not going to work. And you know what God says? Fine. I'll do it myself. You can keep your end of the covenant. I'm going to keep your end of the covenant and my end of the covenant. When, when, they, when the writers of the New Testament think about this characteristic of God that I'm telling you I find insane and impossible to kind of like wrap my head around, they use the word faithful. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. This God is a covenant-keeping God who has decided to be faithful to a humanity that continuously refuses to be faithful to him. Uh, one of my heroes of the faith, a guy named Eugene Peterson, he's the guy that wrote the message. And uh, when he died, uh, his son Leif got up and gave this eulogy. And the eulogy, he says, that he says that his dad had really only had one message his whole life. And he said that that's the same message that at night, before putting him to bed, he would kind of like sneak into his room and whisper in his ear. And the message was this. God loves you. God is on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. 